Welcome to the NM Talks Healthcare Podcast. On this podcast, you'll find thought-provoking insight into critical topics surrounding the healthcare industry. Each episode features Nelson Mullins healthcare attorneys and special guests who offer a variety of experience in healthcare. My name is Heather Miller, and I'm a healthcare transactional and regulatory lawyer in the Boca Raton office of Nelson Mullins. Today, I am joined by Trish Marcus, a partner in the Raleigh office of Nelson Mullins, who focuses her practice on healthcare regulatory compliance and transactional matters. Trish has particularly deep experience in HIPAA, data privacy and security, and healthcare technology issues. She also happens to be the current president-elect of the American Health Law Association. We have over 45 years of combined experience practicing law in the healthcare industry. In today's podcast, we'll discuss five healthcare-related trends we are seeing on the horizon for 2023. There are many additional trends, of course, and future podcasts will touch upon those. Although our view of the horizon is not crystal clear, in 2023, we expect to see significant focus and changes in the areas of healthcare technology, which include telehealth, remote patient monitoring, HIPAA and information blocking, an expansion of the value-based care arrangements, ongoing consolidation throughout the industry, greater focus on social determinants of health and health equity, and renewed focus on the mental health and related opioid fentanyl crisis. Whether or not the U.S. experiences a recession in 2023, these trends will continue. So Trish, with your years of experience and your longtime involvement with the AHLA, what are you forecasting for 2023? Thanks, Heather. Well, as we've discussed, I'm forecasting that there will be quite a bit of movement in the healthcare technology sector. Initially, telehealth and remote patient monitoring are going to continue to be hot topics and areas where I think we will see increasing activity. Although many believe that we've moved past the COVID pandemic, according to the federal government, the U.S. remains in the public health emergency. As we all know, telehealth services expanded exponentially during the pandemic, in significant part due to a series of federal and state law waivers and enforcement flexibilities that made it easier for providers and patients to engage in telehealth visits. But it remains unclear which of those waivers and flexibilities will extend beyond the end of the public health emergency. These waivers and exceptions included such things as permitting the use of audio-only equipment, which of course was key to provide healthcare to patients in areas that lack broadband access, permitting providers to waive or reduce patient cost-sharing responsibilities, permitting visits to occur wherever the patient is instead of at a healthcare facility site, permitting new patients to receive telehealth services even if they didn't first have an inpatient visit with the healthcare provider, requiring the same payment for a telehealth services for an inpatient service, and many others. It's been an open question what will happen with telehealth after the public health emergency ends. And in fact, there has been a lot of activity at the federal and state levels throughout the pandemic. Since March of 2021, at least 25 states have adopted new laws or amended their existing laws regarding telehealth. 
and several federal laws have recently extended certain of the flexibilities and waivers for different periods beyond the end of the emergency. So Trish, it's undeniable that telehealth is here to stay. Whenever we see an increased use of any healthcare item, good, or service, we typically see more enforcement in that particular area. So in addition to providers asking themselves the questions you just raised, is there any sort of other advice that you can give to them with respect to how to remain compliant, knowing that regulators typically put more dollars into areas where they see increased utilization? Well, Heather, that's a great question. And my response to that would be that providers and their counsel should be familiar with what the OIG has been doing in the telehealth space. There have been several fraud takedowns during 2021 and 2022. And in fact, the OIG recently identified seven new telehealth fraud indicators in a program integrity brief. So we do know that there will be increased scrutiny and enforcement for those who are providing telehealth services. And according to the OIG's brief, providers should be cautious about billing both a telehealth service and a facility fee for most visits, telehealth services at the highest and most expensive level, not a shock there, billing telehealth services for a high number of days in a year, billing both Medicare fee-for-service and a Medicare Advantage plan for the same service with a high proportion of services, billing a high average number of hours of telehealth services per visit, billing telehealth services for a high number of beneficiaries, and billing for a telehealth service and ordering medical equipment for a high proportion of beneficiaries. It's fair to say, in summary, that the OIG is looking at outliers just as CMS contractors who are reviewing physician or hospital claims look for medical necessity and overutilization of services. And so providers should conduct themselves accordingly and be cautious in engaging in any of those activities. Thank you, Trish. That's really helpful information. In my introduction, I was mentioning how you really are one of the national experts on HIPAA, privacy, and information blocking. And I was wondering, you know, information blocking is something that's becoming an even hotter topic. I'm curious what your thoughts are relating to what you think 2023 will hold for new rules on HIPAA and information blocking. We are expecting a new final rule on HIPAA arising out of a proposed rule from 2021 that is intended to address a number of things, principally the increased use of technology by individuals and allowing individuals greater access to their information and making sure that individuals get access to that information sooner and at less cost. And those concepts are also key to the information blocking regulations. There is also a proposed new rule that will be issued by the Office of the National Coordinator sometime in 2023 that's going to address IT certification program updates and also enhancements to the information blocking rule that will support information sharing. Along with those updates, ONC has published and continues to publish from time to time FAQs about specific information blocking. I like to call them conundrums. And so I do think 
that there will be additional guidance on the interaction of HIPAA and the information blocking rule in 2023, which is good because the information blocking rule in some ways undoes or requires looking at data privacy sort of upside down from the way that we've typically looked at it through the lens of HIPAA. So Trish, one of the areas that I work on in a regular basis relates to value-based care and value-based enterprises. Are there things you think are likely to change in 2023 relating to value-based care? Well, I'm going to answer that briefly, and then I would love your thoughts because I suspect that you have more familiarity with some of these developments than I do. But I will say this. I know that the prevalence of technology and the additional types of platforms that have been created over the last several years are going to be key for healthcare providers to successfully engage in value-based care initiatives and to not lose their shirts. I think about a hospital at home transaction that we worked on earlier this year, and people, of course, are key to this, but Without having the various technologies, including the home-based platform from which the uh, clinicians can view information about the patients or have telehealth visits with the patients who are in their homes, and without having all the analytics and the wearables that provide data back to the clinicians about the patient's status, none of this would be possible. So I think it makes sense when we are in an environment where Healthcare continues to get more expensive, and we are trying to lower the cost curve. I think it makes a lot of sense to try to figure out how we can use some of these new technologies to lower healthcare costs, which in most instances includes keeping people out of institutions and hospital facilities when it's possible. Tell me from your perspective what you think about value-based care and where it might be going in 23. I think you hit the nail on the head. Without technology and without the increased use of telehealth and remote patient monitoring, we wouldn't be talking as much about value-based care and value-based enterprises. Given the changes to the stark and kickback regulations that recently added new exceptions and safe harbors for certain value-based care arrangements, that with the advent of the new technology is really going to lead to the formation of many new relationships with the goal of capturing patient populations and keeping referrals within a network of providers. I think it will also allow providers who did not enroll in an ACO or DCE or other similar model with CMS to structure relationships, which will ultimately allow them to take on more risk and negotiate alternative reimbursements with the payers. The ultimate goal for these value-based relationships is to be able to provide better care, as you mentioned. But there's also the goal of earning more money or at least not having your compensation reduced when costs are increased. So it really allows providers to be creative and caring for patients with some real potential upside. And as you said, technology, without a doubt, is the key to enabling providers and payers to measure the quality improvements. I think we're gonna see a lot more value-based relationships than we did in 2022. Yeah, I think it's gonna be really interesting to see how those relationships play out. And frankly, 
to see how providers and payers come up with use cases for value-based care that they can expand on. I agree. I think that's also, I think, going to be a catalyst for changes in the market with respect to consolidation, joint ventures, acquisitions, and sales. I think we're definitely going to see some changes as a result of these value-based exceptions and safe harbors and the technology that allows these providers to now provide more value-based care. I work a lot in the transactional space, and I know you do to a certain extent as well. Where do you really see consolidation going? There's a lot of talk of a recession. Law firms in particular are gearing up for having a lower volume of transactional work and less activity in the M&A space. And I'm curious to see what you're hearing, especially being in your position in the AHLA. Well, again, I will give you my take and then would love to hear what yours is. I think that consolidation is without question going to continue in part because of the situation that has been created by the pandemic in the last couple of years, namely high labor and supply costs and declining Medicare payments. So there are going to be healthcare providers in all sorts of different milieus who will need to have a partner because they cannot continue to operate without the profits that uh, they're not making, essentially. Um, and that's going to, I think, extend across the healthcare industry to health systems. Physician practices will continue to be consolidated, whether it's with those health systems or with private equity or other groups. Look at what's going on in retail. And I think you have some specific interest in and knowledge of some of the retail healthcare initiatives that have been ramping up over the last few years and really look poised to, I don't want to say jump off the cliff, but maybe soar is the better term. What are your thoughts? I agree. I mean, retailers like CVS, Walgreens, and Amazon they're taking aim directly at providers by offering more accessible and affordable options for care. But I think one of the things that people discount and that one of the things that providers have the biggest advantage on over retailers is the patient trust and the patient relationships. The retailers will continue moving forward in the space. You know, you mentioned hospital transactions and health systems, of course, will continue to face financial difficulties for all the reasons you mentioned. And although hospital transactions have slowed in the last few years, I think we're going to see a lot more activity in the M&A space because they need to spread their growing expenses over large organizations and increase their bargaining leverage with insurers. I think we'll continue to see more activity from private equity and physician practices. Historically, PE firms invested in single specialty practices like dermatology, gastroenterology, and orthopedics with the goal of capturing more fee-for-service revenue. Well, with value-based care, this is really causing a big shift in the market. Now you're seeing PE firms begin to invest in more primary care practices. And they're also starting to invest heavily in value-based care infrastructure, like analytics, real-time data, care team redesign, while still trying to focus on cost-cutting opportunities, because the reality is that PE firms need to generate a large and quick enough return on investment for shareholders. And value-based contracts typically take longer to see the ROI. 
So these deals also largely bet on the market continuing to be hot, but it's really questionable how long the MA market will remain sustainable at its current rate. You know, I think despite talk of a bubble bursting, PE firms currently have access to capital. Beyond, you know, private equity, we're going to see a lot others entering the market. New buyers, insurance companies, which are already starting to buy at practices, large retail pharmacies and tech giants. One thing I think that is going to be a new focus for 2023 is in the hospice space. We'll see more transactions, I think, involving hospices, given the value-based insurance design model, some people call the Medicare Advantage hospice carbon. So while hospices may see more patient volumes by enrolling in a VBID program, the billing process for hospices will change dramatically and may cause hospices to struggle with cash flow issues. So this is definitely another area to keep an eye on. Wow, that's a lot of great information, and it's wonderful that you are keeping your finger on the pulse of what is going on these days in M&A. Sort of a related question. I think that a potential wild card in the consolidation is what the FTC ends up doing in terms of antitrust enforcement. I think that there recently was a uh, notice issued about the FTC's intent to object to restrictive covenants. And given that, as you are well aware, those are used throughout the M&A <laughs> transaction world. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about how a ban on restrictive covenants or something similar that might arise out of the FCC's proposal here. How, how do you think that would affect M&A? I think that depending upon the buyer, that will impact how strongly they are affected. So for mm -hmm. example, when private equity comes in and buys a practice, you can still have a non-compete in connection with the acquisition of a business because otherwise no one would ever buy a business if the next day the seller could go out and compete. Because doctors sometimes get rollover equity in a platform, anyone could easily come up with strategies that lock a provider in for five years. And then when you go to sell, you can then lock up them for another five years. I think the partners that are going to have the most struggle are hospitals. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to have less flexibility than other buyers to weather the storm with non-competes. That's a great answer. One other thing I wanted to touch on uh, during today's uh, discussion is what I think will be a continued and increasing focus on health equity. CMS continues to roll out different health equity initiatives and quality measurements, including ones that are related to maternal health, social needs and risk factors, and opioid use and related adverse events. So CMS is definitely paying attention to this, um, but they are not the only entity that is. HHS recently restored the Affordable Care Act's rule uh, that prohibits discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation. It'll be interesting to see how it interacts with these recent enacted state laws that are at odds with this rule. Uh, there are some states that have banned gender-affirming care for minors and 
Others have permitted clinicians to refrain from providing certain care that goes against their conscience, whether that care is related to abortion or to providing treatment to the LGBTQ plus population. So I think there's a lot going on in the health equity space. The last thing I would say there is there has been an uptick in clinical trials focusing on minority and underserved populations. And I suspect that those will flourish this year, thanks in part to new technologies and analytics engines that allow research organizations to identify and recruit potential study participants. So I think that these studies are going to hold really promising results for identifying more effective and personalized treatments for these underserved populations. And might I add, that is long overdue. So there are some exciting things going on in the health equity space. I agree. You know, you have health equity where you're trying to incentivize providers to look beyond just the condition that comes into the office, right? You have someone coming in sick all the time with asthma issues because they don't have an air conditioner. But then you also have the mental health aspect. The pandemic just exacerbated the mental health issue. And you talk about, you know, mental health coverage. The reality is many mental health providers, they don't take insurance. You have to find providers that are actually going to provide the coverage for it to really have a lasting impact. I think that um, with the lack of mental health providers, and by the way, that has led people to seek mental health assistance through applications and virtually. And in some cases, that has backfired because those virtual care services have really been a vehicle by which the companies behind them are cashing in on individuals' need for certain mental health medications. My hope is we are going to be able to do a couple things over in 2023, or at least start to do a couple things. And one of them is to focus, continue to focus on getting people who have mental health conditions assistance. As you noted, with the provider shortage, that's hard, but I think that's got to be something that is really a high priority because otherwise we're going to continue to see additional, not only potentially additional suicides, but additional use of opioids and and other drugs. And speaking of that, now that fentanyl seems to be laced uh, in or on every drug known to man, the chance encounter of an infant whose parent is addicted to an opioid or just the possibility that we will continue to see repeated and increased use of these drugs until more and more people die. We've just got to get a handle on this. And so I'm hoping that there will continue to be federal support of and payment for programs for individuals who suffer from substance use disorders, but also um, additional money for research into determining How do we best treat depression and other mental health disorders, including addiction? The the mind is sort of the last frontier of the body in medicine. There's a lot that still is unknown. And so my hope is that 2023 is the year that people start realizing we've got to enter this final frontier and make sure that we are able to, um, what am I trying to say? Capture it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Trish. I really appreciate you joining me on this podcast. And for those of you that are listening, we hope you enjoyed our discussion on our predictions for health law trends in 2023. 
To learn more about or contact me or Trish with questions, you may find our contact information on our website at www.nelsonmullen.com. Thanks for joining us today and please look out for the next episode of NM Talks Healthcare. Thanks everyone. Thank you, Heather.